Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Hello and welcome. Dan Olds here, and we have another fantastic episode of Radio Free HPC. As always, joined by Henry Newman. How you doing, Henry? Great, Dan. Fantastic. Uh, we also have Jesse Lanham and Shaheen Khan out there. How are you guys? Doing okay. All right, Dano. Let the record show that Dano used the word that does not start with an S. I did. <laughs> this one is a fantastic. Although I do want to say this show will be scintillating as well. Maybe 15% more scintillating than usual. I was going to go with super, but that works better. Yeah. Yeah. So you got through finals, right, Jesse? I did. We survived. How'd it go? I think it went all right. I'm okay with it. Yeah? When do you get results back? In your grade, I guess? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's posted somewhere out of sight, out of mind at this point. <laughs> so have you blown town? Yes. Oh, yeah. I would nice. first first flight out to my parents in California out of miserable weather in Indiana. Nice. Do you have to go to Chicago to get out there? No, I go through Indy, which is a lot closer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's good. It didn't take you like 35 hours, did it? No, 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 it was fine. See, my flights to and from South Africa took 35 hours. Oh. And that's one of our topics today. Not the flights, but what happened at the South Africa CHPC National Conference, which was very, very cool. Um, I guess What I'll happened start- at the conference, Dan? Well, I was looking for someone to ask that question. <laughs> These guys have probably already gone on mute. Um, no, 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 Dan, I have not gone on mute. Uh, okay. You will soon, though. Um, this, this, is, is, this is Johannesburg, right? This is Johannesburg, and this is Happy Satoli's baby here. And this has grown from just a little intra-country cluster competition with a couple of papers being presented to an entire like four-day session with multiple tracks and with many different speakers and things like that. It was very cool. What are some of the tracks? The tracks that they had were breakaways that had to do with HPC hardware, HPC applications, storage and I.O., and even some uh, quantum computing. Yeah, they did a great job. One of the things that'll be interesting to Shaheen, at least, is Thomas Sterling's talk was titled, The Future of Computing Will Be Non-Von Neumann. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Really? Yes. Yes. And I believe that they filmed it, but I don't have a copy of the video. I, I was out doing other stuff, so I didn't roll tape on it myself. Our friend John Gustafson was there with his topic, Eliminating Weapons of Math Destruction, Next Generation Arithmetic, which set me off because it's all about the IEEE 754 standard for floating point, which is awful and a crime. Really, Dan? Are you sure? Yes, because it doesn't obey the laws of arithmetic, specifically the the communicative law, the communicative law. I can't pronounce that. Why can I not pronounce that? Somebody want to jump in and give me a hand on the pronunciation? Commutative? There you go. It doesn't doesn't obey that law. If you add numbers up in different orders, you get different results. I think the trick is has nothing with communication. That's the problem. I think the trick is there's issues with Dan. That could be as well. I'm still recovering from the travel. You can't pronounce the rule. Maybe mm, commentary. (laughs) Oh, so you're coming out in favor of IEEE 754? 
I know. I, I withhold until I can fully understand it. Yes. Okay. Then it's commute like when you commute a sentence. Yes. Not communicate like when you're communicative. Well, either way, it disobeys that law. And it's not a suggestion. It's a law. It's a fact. It is. Anywho, they also had three, count them, three different student competitions there. Whoa. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, it was very cool. They had a uh, competition called a datathon. And what they had the, the students do was come up with their own local problem, local to Africa or South Africa to solve, and then come up with a public data sets that will help them build an algorithm, then come up with their own algorithms to solve the problem. What were some of the problems? Things like trying to route uh, one of the problems they have is that ambulances are in short supply mm -hmm. in some areas and trying to route them the best and looking at past incidences and past needs for ambulances and using that to extrapolate into the future and then discover the best routes for the ambulances to take. Okay, that's really neat. Yeah. They were also looking at things like healthcare and cancer occurrences, stuff like that. I'm going to write a full slate of what they're doing in upcoming articles. But it was a very interesting challenge. They also had their cybersecurity competition. This would be the third time they've done it, where they have students in teams of four attacking a big hacker server in Switzerland, a service. For the first day, it's capture the flag. First couple of days, it's capture the flag exercises, and there's a whole bunch of them up there. But then the last day, it is student-on-student -student crime as they attempt to hack each other's systems. Nice. Oh, that's fun. That was very fun. And what they had to do was to rename the system to their team name, and they got points oh, so that was Oh, that was how you won? Yeah. Uh, the way they started it out is they gave each team a server that was very, very, very poorly secured, all sorts of exploits available. And they gave the kids two hours to patch it up. And then it was a free-for-all. Really? Yes. A very quiet free-for-all. I mean, they're, they were heads down. They're no talking, no joking around, nothing. They were heads down, concentrating on owning each other's systems. Wow. And that was very neat to watch. And again, there'll be articles up on this stuff uh, as soon as I can get them generated. I also did interviews with all teams in all three competitions. The last competition was the tried and true student cluster competition. And this is what they use to pick their team that's going to be going to ISC in Germany in June. Mm. And it was really a lot of fun. And there's one team and one kid in particular that I want to uh, highlight. The team is Wits A or Wits 1 from one of their universities. And the kid who, again, you'll see in videos and in articles is named Donald. And first time ever in a cluster competition, when I interviewed them, he flat out told me they're going to win. Yes. I saw the video. Kind of like the babe pointed his bleachers and pointed and said, I'm winning. Yes. Also, as I immediately thought, like Larry Bird well, going in and telling everybody that they already put his name on the check, who's coming in second place. <laughs> so then I went back for the second interview and he told me all the other teams might as well pack up and go home. Wow. That it was done. It was over. And just the thing is, it's not bragging. You if so you back did it Donald up. deliver? <laughs> Donald delivered. Donald and his team, as he highlighted how great his team was, they delivered in spades. They did. 
Yeah, they, they how, won- how well how well did they do point wise compared to the nearest competition? They were a good fifteen points ahead of the next runner up. Wow. They spent their last day just optimizing, not struggling to get anything in. And they did a hell of a job on that. So the four members on that team will be going to the uh, finals at ISC in Germany. All right. So very impressive. The other great thing that happened is Intel gave away two $5,000 checks, one for the best male clusterer and one for the best female clusterer. And uh, I was on the judging committee for all of this, and they all wrote letters. And it was incredible how far $5,000 will go in South Africa. For some, they would use it to buy a laptop because their current laptop isn't up to the task of handling their coursework. For others, it was going to pay for their entire graduate school. Wow along with scholarships and things like that. So it was incredibly transformative. And Donald won one. He won the 5000 for the best male cluster competition student. And that was just heartwarming. When they announced it, he ran all the way around the room, did a big circuit, high-fiving everybody seated for dinner, and then came up to the stage and even kind of broke down a little bit. I mean, this was a hugely emotional thing. That's awesome. I'm glad he got it. Oh, so am I. So am I. You know, and it was, it took us a good couple of hours to decide all these awards and prizes. And there was a lot of uh, arguing and some horse trading even in the room. Really? But uh, everything came out as it should. Yes. Yeah. There were, I think, eight of us judges. Yeah, eight's not a good number. You want a uh, odd number. Yes. Eight, eight never works well. Yeah, it does if you've got me in the room arguing. Worked out well enough, at least. And then they announced their team. And they're sending a very strong team to ISC. I'm very impressed. It'll be interesting to see how they do. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to predict they do pretty well. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to call them an odds-on favorite yet because there's always Qinghua out there. But they're going to finish in the top three, I think. These are some really hard workers. And the thing to realize, Jesse, is that I guess like you, when you did the cluster competition, none of these students really knew anything about HPC before probably January of this year. Oh, awesome. I love that. And none of these students are repeat members of any team. They don't allow that. Really? Okay, perfect. Give me give me a South yes. Africa jersey. I'm going to support it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's the whole goal of the South Africa cluster competition and all of their efforts is to spread the HPC knowledge far and wide. So the teams that came from the ISC team last year, they were the mentors for this year's team. I love that model. That's really cool. But none of them get to repeat. Yeah, well, then you're, you're like motivated to be a good teacher of what you had to learn. Yes. Because, you know, it, you don't get to do it again. Exactly. And then the students, the new students are motivated to learn because they put together such a record. Yeah. No, that's an awesome model. So many wins. They've never finished below third. So there's my trip to South Africa. Questions, comments. Impressive, Dan. I'm glad you were there and I'm glad you, it sounds like you, uh, you, directed the committee to go the right way. Good for you. I did my best and they did their best too. That was all, it was all good, but it's kind of heartwarming to see these kids learning so much and getting so much out of this. It kind of, you know, I'm a cynical guy, but uh, (laughs) this managed to melt my heart and maybe it even grew two sizes like the Grinch. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect for the holidays. Perfect for the holidays. So there you go. So now back to the regular world. Henry. Yes. 
do you have a reason why no one should ever be online ever? Yes. And I think this has been in the national news, but I have a slightly different take on it. We've all probably all heard about the problem in New Orleans where they basically took down the whole city from a technology point of view. I mean, whatever the ransomware was, it went to a lot of different computers in the system. But different from anyone else I've heard, any other city I've heard of, and if anybody knows the one, please let me know, is they had a plan. And whether it was a good plan or a bad plan, it was a plan. And they implemented the plan and they turned off a bunch of systems in New Orleans. And I don't know the details yet. We'll probably know the details probably maybe by the end of the week. But this is the first city I've heard of. How quickly did they? Probably 18, 24 hours, Shaheen, from what I can gather. Hmm. I mean, how quickly did they turn them off? Yeah. I heard it was within just a few hours. Oh, really, Dan? I heard that on TV. I saw an interview. Yeah. That they had an alert that came out Friday morning, I think, mm-hmm. that their one of their systems was being hacked, and they shut everything down within a couple of hours from that. So I don't know if the infection really traveled all that far. Well, an infection can travel very far, very quickly, Dan. Yeah, true. But I think they did preserve at least something uninfected. Well, and the fact is, if you don't infect everything, it's much easier to do restores and do low-level restores and blow things away. Let me ask you something about this, Henry. Is There are insurance companies that insure for this. Are there any insurance policies that you're aware of that go far enough to say that if you keep your systems up to date, you pay premium A? But if you can't prove your systems are up to date, you pay premium A plus a big premium? I don't know. I would suspect if we're not there now, we will get there soon. But that stuff's not public, Dan. Yeah. it's just, I've never, never heard of it being public. Yeah. To me, that seems like the only model that's going to ensure that cities and states and other organizations keep their systems up to date, because I think that's the vector that most of these folks are traveling along with phishing and things like that. A lot of them don't have insurance, Dan, and Baltimore didn't have insurance. Those small towns in Texas didn't have insurance. That's true. Las Cruces uh, public school system didn't have insurance. I mean, so I don't know. Jesse put up a map of all the ransomware attacks in, in, in the U.S. It's pretty, pretty dramatic. It's interesting in Ohio, Ohio looks to be hammered, whereas California, being a much bigger state with a lot more population, doesn't look too bad. So it's interesting that there's certain states that their clusters, people that aren't doing what they need to be doing. Pretty interesting. So Jesse, thanks for sharing this. You should put that up on the yeah on yeah the we'll do right yeah that's right. Well. That is a cautious note. Keep your systems up to date. Teach your employees about phishing. And let's see if we can slow this ransomware stuff down. So on to maybe a happier note. Jesse, do you have a question for the panel today? Yes, sir. Actually, let me put it under the correct heading. Things that you might pretend to know, but you might not really know. Almost the correct title. We'll go with it. So here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Things you think you know, but maybe don't. Where we're going to ask questions about topics you wanted to ask about, but again, prefer somebody else did. So this week, (laughs) tape storage. (laughs) Questions about tape storage. First off, is this still necessary? Tape storage is necessary. Yes. Uh, I believe it is it is currently used 
there are ways, and and the cloud vendors have proven this for with geographic erasure coding and high level erasure coding that tape storage is not used. Really, why not? Because of the cost, Dan, I mean, and the and the latency, and you know, average time to first byte on you know LTO tapes is a couple minutes. Oh, really? Even for glaze, yeah. By the time you pay, well, I mean that's assuming it's in a library. I mean, if you but you use uh, you use it for cold storage, don't you? I, but but Sheen, you need to be uh, migrating this data over time because even if the tape lasts twenty years, mm-hmm. in which it doesn't, but even if it did, the interface and the software and the technology disappear long before that. They end of life. Anywhere interfaces are interlifing anywhere between five and seven years. So you've got to be done migrating your tapes at that time. And it, it becomes extremely expensive. Now, obviously, the cloud vendors have unlimited funds and unlimited resources, and they can write their own software. But the software that most people buy to use and manage tapes is not cheap, and it costs a lot of people. So even when you add the total cost per terabyte per gigabyte, whatever you want, when you include slot costs and power costs, computer room floor costs. And the fact is, tape density is not increasing as quickly as uh, disk density. That's it. Add those in. It's not that cost effective anymore. And in fact, if you add up all the costs, including software, it's probably uh, more expensive than, you know, some of the freeware you can get because you don't have to buy the whole software to manage the robots. Interesting. You know, it's one of the things that I'm kind of sorry to see it go if it's truly going, because one of the most interesting electromechanical things to watch is a tape picker at work. Yeah. Think of the size of of a huge supercomputer, and it's got a mechanical arm Mm -hmm. that moves around and picks out the specific tape you want and pounds it into a slot. At a high rate of speed, and don't be in the picker when it's moving, Jesse. (laughs) It it will end poorly for you. Yeah. Just saying. So that's one thing, is that we're not talking one tape. We're talking about a whole big jukebox. Yeah. Okay. So the second thing, Henry, is that I thought tape data lasts like 30 years. You're saying it doesn't. Even it, I said, even, well, it depends. There's environmental issues. You have to look at all the environmentals and things like that. But the issue, Shaheen, it's the interface. It's interfaces. But if the vendors are still offering them, then the interface will carry on, right? No. Look at LTO. You can't read LTO. I think it's, we're down LTO 5 with LTO 8 drives. So that means if you got LTO 5 tapes, you got to migrate. And guess what? LTO 5, if you don't want to migrate, I think LTO 5 was, I think they had some fiber channel 1 or maybe fiber channel. How's that that different from any other storage? You have to do that with your disk drives too. Exactly. That's my point. But the the idea of putting in your cost model that this is going to last 30 years, it doesn't work. Ah. That's my point. You're saying that in practice, they change. You're going to have to migrate way before you get You're there. You're going to have to migrate anyway. Correct. So you might as well migrate to mm-hmm. inexpensive high-density disk. Yep. Got it. I didn't think it was changing that frequently, though. Maybe once or twice it has done that, no? Nope, Shaheen. Incorrect. Factually incorrect. Really? Okay. I mean, when we went from round tape to square tapes, that was one big thing. Yeah, well, that Shaheen, you're kind of a little bit behind the time. Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh, no, no. I'm like marching forward. <laughs> okay. Culminating with LTO, Altrium, etc. Yeah. But, but but I thought you could do encryption. I thought you sure. you can. had durability. I thought you have... 
portability. I thought you, but, but LTE, you know, you actually physically remove it and, you know. Yeah, you can't. But, but LTO is not backward compatible forever. Mm. And so you're saying you might as well, if you've got to migrate, you might as well and, migrate to something cheaper. And, and, and here's another thing it costs money, floor space. Yeah. But fundamentally, you're saying the TCO is starting to favor disk drives and SSDs. Correct. Now, I will admit that tape still has higher reliability per device. But one of the things tape doesn't, it's one device. You lose that device, you're kind of toast. With disk, you at least have the ability in lots of free software to easily use to stripe things yeah. and get higher right. higher of reliability and all those kinds of goodness around it and performance also by striping things. And you can't do that with tape with a razor because coating. you're working with one spindle at a time. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. Does that answer your question, Jesse? Yes, sir, it does. Or is it causing more questions? <laughs> well, it's definitely causing more questions, but we have more weeks for me to be like, and back to that after I thought about it and it kept me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> so if you hear that sound in the background... It can only mean one thing. It's time for the catch of the week. Shaheen, do you have anything? I do. I do. So last week, I had three or four very busy and arduous days when I attended two different conferences, uh, one of which was the RISC-V Summit. Now, we had the pleasure of having the RISC-V Foundation CEO as a guest, Callista Redmond, a few episodes ago. So I encourage everybody to go listen to that episode if you have not. This one had 2,000 people attending. The whole RISC-V thing started in 2010. Mm -hmm. So less than 10 years, they've built a pretty big flywheel. And of course, it started at UC Berkeley, where the whole notion of RISC, reduced instruction set computing, started together with Stanford, and it was that part of the world. And this was in contrast with complex instruction set computers. So we need to, at some point, maybe go over those. But the reason they started this was because of post-Moore's law as I think Alyssa mentioned as well. So at this point, they've got 435 companies that are members, of which 44 are chip companies. Nine of them, if I remember, were storage I.O. companies. Over 30 of them are R&D companies, 25 software companies, et cetera, et cetera. They're growing by leaps and bounds. They expect another 50% growth in membership in 2020. Lots and lots in international environments. And I think that's one reason they move their headquarters to Switzerland. Yeah, among many, many other things. Another watch the space area. Uh, NVIDIA has a controller that is RISC-V. A company called Sci-Fi is building lots of chips. Exponential is doing that. Samsung, Microchip, a very big company, especially in the embedded world. So they're getting good traction. So it was a good conference. I especially enjoyed attending Professor Patterson. His contributions are unreal. And it's just great to be in the presence of such great guys. But anyway, so it was a great thing. And you know I've been a big proponent of RISC-V. Yes, you have. Yes, so am I. Very cool. Yep. Very cool. Now, one thing also that is interesting is that the articles that came out after the conference, you know, some competition is starting to brew ah. because the reporters are obviously calling other chip vendors and ask for comments. And the comments are starting to be pretty edgy uh, from uh, from some of the other players. I like that. So this is a good thing for consumers. Very good. Right. 
Very, very good. Jesse, what do you got for a catch? Yeah, so the catch that I've got is the U.S. Government Accountability Office's Information on Airline IT Outages Report. Um, this was published in June, but I found it right before I flew out to my parents' house for the holidays and was reading it in the airport because uh, it prompted this interesting little thought exercise that went something like this. In the report, it discusses that airlines will experience at least one IT-related malfunction a year, or per month, sorry. Ouch. One IT-related malfunction per month, correct? And when you think about that, that number is pretty low if you think about the total number of flights in a month. Oh, yeah. However, the airlines don't have to disclose if your delay or even your flight cancellation was caused by an IT problem. Ah. Yeah. So I'm sitting there in the airport thinking about all those little somewhat janky IT systems that are all chained together, like the ones you can see, the boarding pass scanners, and then all the ones you can't, like traffic management systems. Sure. The fact that most of them are legacy systems. And then wondering what would happen if you were to, you know, tweak one of those systems or what would go on and then how many times my flight has been delayed due to IT and I wouldn't know about it. Absolutely well, true. Well, and what do you get what do you get what do you get paid for for IT versus non-IT? Yeah. So it I mean, because if they don't owe you anything if it's weather related. Exactly. Yes. So that's if you're stuck, one of our listeners traveling over the holidays and listening to this episode, maybe burn some time thinking about all of those options. That's a very good, very timely, very good job. What do you got, Henry? No, and you go first, Dan. I want you to go first. Okay. Well, what I have is that Apple's vice president of sales or worldwide marketing, Phil Schiller, says that students will fail if they use Chromebooks instead of iPads. <laughs> wait, wait, did, did he did he That's a did he get quote. this information from Rich Bruckner? No, I don't believe so. Here's his his direct quote Kids who are really into learning and want to learn will have better success. It's not hard to understand why kids aren't engaged in a classroom without applying technology in a way that inspires them. You need to have these cutting-edge learning tools that help kids really achieve their best results. Then he went on to say, Chromebooks have gotten in, gotten to the classroom because, frankly, they're cheap testing tools for required testing. If all you want to do is test kids, well, maybe a cheap notebook will do that, but they're not going to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> a, bold, a bold statement if I've ever heard one. A bold statement, especially for someone uh, that just bought a Chromebook. Yeah. So how do you respond to that, Henry Newman? I'm not even going to go there, you- Dan. I'm, I'm going to move on to my catch of the week. <laughs> Which is a well, wait, 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 no, wait, wait, no, wait, wait, no. wait. Hold on, I gotta hear. I, I want to hear how Shaheen responds to this, being an Apple bigot <laughs> that he is. Well, I do think it depends on what you're trying to do with these equipment. Are they doomed to failure, Shaheen, for using a Chromebook? <laughs> Are they doomed? Are we dooming a generation? I don't believe that's what he said. But <laughs> <laughs> well, let me go ahead and review. Uh, he says maybe a cheap notebook will do that but they're not going to succeed. <laughs> it's pretty plain. It's not context. It's pretty plain. Well, at the risk of sounding like his PR agent, I would say that <laughs> what Mr. Schiller meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> so he would like to uh, withdraw and extend his comments. That, uh, probably. That without a doubt, the Apple platform is more powerful and thus enables you to do more things. 
I guess I'm not going to respond to that, but I will point out that since most of the things kids do are not locally done, they're done via their network and their servers or, or some kind of cloud application, I find this interesting position. That is quite true. But Apple itself is rapidly pushing in that direction. But Gene, it, 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 but, but Gene, but Gene, true, but but, it, it but Gene the cost, a Chromebook too. is a cloud-based device. So Apple's no, pushing that. So, yeah. so I, Dan, we have to move on. Otherwise, I'm going to explode and I'm <laughs> Okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay. My, my two cents, though. With, with this whole bring your own device business that's going on in schools, because I was sort of on the upper echelon of that, it wasn't fully rolled out while I was still in middle and high school, but it's definitely there now in a lot of places. You really want a cost effective option and having to do iPads is not for you know needing to get a whole bunch of kids, some of which this will have to come out of their own parents' tuition pocket. So having Chromebooks seems to me still like the viable option because you don't have to replace them as frequently. And like as aforementioned, most of the stuff is cloud-based. It's Google Drive, it's Kahoot, it's that sort of and stuff. And you can pick up a Chromebook yeah. for under 200 bucks. Yes, yeah. you can. And I actually picked up a decent one today because of a, 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 an old an issue with an old uh, Windows laptop for two sixty nine, that's really pretty beefy. Which is why so, I brought this up. Mm-hmm. All right, we're moving on. I'm going to do my catch of the week, which is the great fifty million African IP address heist. Oh yeah. Ooh. So nonprofits in Africa are selling chunks of the internet to African companies and making profit. How? <laughs> I haven't heard about what? this. It's called IP addresses are are a commodity in demand. Yeah, especially IP four addresses, Dan. Especially IP. Yeah, we're almost out of them. Yeah. Yeah, and they're going between fifty and twenty five dollars a piece, according to Krebs. And this gentleman, and I say that. Gingerly, gentlemen, was though it's a nonprofit, he's not supposed to be making a profit, was making a profit selling IP4 addresses to kind of the highest bidder and kind of under the table. So he's jumping out and grabbing these at some sort of wholesale price, or yep, he did? Yep, boy, and now he he's got, selling them off? Yep, exactly. For him. If to, well, he sold them to his company first from the nonprofit, <laughs> and then the, not, the company sold them. He's documented $50 million of purloined IP addresses. That's a lot for one. That's a lot of purloined IP addresses. Yes, it is. That's probably what, I mean, I think wholesale, you can pick them up for like four bucks a piece, something like that. No, 25, 15, 25. No, I mean at wholesale back then when he probably did it. He's doing it today and it's wholesale is 20. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's my catch of the week. It's a new profit making wow. is selling IP addresses. Well, I would imagine his little jaunt is probably done at this point, right? Well, if you got $50 million, you can move somewhere, Dan. I'm sure it's an overseas bank. That's true. That's true. Yep. Nice. Well, on that um, disquieting note and also encouraging note. I would say enterprising. Enterprising note. <laughs> and kind of an encouraging note if you're someone that has a few IPv4 addresses hanging around, maybe cash those in and buy some uh, holiday presents. Or, or gift them. Or gift them. Give an IPv4 <laughs> IP address for the holidays. People will thank you later. Don't gift it to a nonprofit, though. No, but it's kind of like a <laughs> it's kind of like a savings bond because those are only going to increase in value. Yes, they will. All your young nieces and nephews will hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your address. <laughs> yeah, Go great. And for first socks. Yeah. Instead of a stock certificate <laughs> or a Bitcoin, give them an IP address. 
Stuff <laughs> your stockings with IP addresses. That's our message for the holidays. <laughs> Thank everybody out there for listening. And we'll be right back at you with some more Radio Free HPC episodes. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Nice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>